0: Uh, We are coming to you live if you are listening on a Saturday, October 7th, 2023. Uh, Otherwise, we are dead. No, I mean recorded. Recorded and our voices are no longer alive. They are some digital representation. Wait, they are digitally represented anyway, even if they are live, because never mind. You know what I'm talking about. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure where you will hear us delve into the amazingly exciting world of the dreary science of economics. Yes, where you can hear us talk about inverted yield curves and whether or not uh, uh, central banks should talk about things or just do them. Very exciting things. Oh, we actually do have some good stuff in, in line today. While we will we'll be talking about very dry subjects like unemployment and things like that, we'll have some other goodies like China. There's always some mention of China. Um, what else do we, we have to talk about? Bonds. Um, but more importantly, what's going on in the world and why it's going on? and when we talk about the statistics, hopefully we will tie them into what they actually mean instead of just dryly quoting numbers. Though, we will begin with disclosures, which are dryly quoted, and then we will follow up with what happened in the market in a dryly quoted way. So, prepare to drool in boredom, or if you are weird, enjoy two hours of excitement. Thank you. So, first, well, that was the first disclosure, wasn't it? Um, uh, we we like puns. We're bald. We have beards. There's two of us. Elder Baldy is older than younger Baldy uh, because genetically it's impossible to be otherwise. As Elder Baldy Jeff is Jake's father,
1: we hold these truths to be self-evident
0: that uh, one father must be older than the son of that right. father. Right. Right. Yes. Unless you enjoy the song, I'm my own grandpa, and that's another What's subject. Yes, Which I do. Um, so that was a very long-winded genetic disclosure. Now, next up, um, this is the Personal Wealth Coach. It is a radio program. It is a podcast. It is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. That firm has the same people talking on this program as the principals of the firm. We can't give investment advice on the air. Why? Because it's supposed to be fiduciary, which means in, your, in the best interest of every one of you listening. And we have to keep it private. And we have to know you when we give the advice. Okay, none of that works unless there's only one of you out there and the rest of you agree to stop listening. It might be hard to properly register that. So uh, we can't do that. So what are we going to do instead? Education. We hope we can teach you something. We may befuddle, bemuse, bewilder, b- baffle, and confuse you all, but maybe there is the potential, possibly, of leaving with something you didn't know before. That's our goal. Uh, hopefully, it will help you make better decisions. Secondly, about that same disclosure, just because the firm's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC has put a star on There's no, There's no gold star that's been r- awarded, no blue ribbon. They do not give affirmations to the public as to the sweetness of our character or any of that stuff they're just the regulatory agency that uh we report to at the firm and to whom our mismanagement or fraud malfeasance or all those other bad things should be reported there um so i've said that uh, we don't pay for this radio program i know that's weird it's saturday morning and it's a financial program on AM radio and we're not paying for it. That's there's some kind of weirdness happening there. We're also not being paid. And for some reason, that's weird. We're, we're economists. We're supposed to be, you know, thinking about what's good idea monetarily. And we've been doing this for 26 years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Free of free of any compensation, which is, there's something economically wrong with that. Well, except that we look at this as if we can educate the people around us to make better decisions and they become wealthier because of it, then we're all going to benefit. I know that's weird, but that's the nature of capitalism. So long as we're not beating each other up in the process. So I, I have very, very loosely paraphrased John Smith's invisible hand statement there. You can look that up, and I do ask that you do. The Wealth of Nations is worth reading, even though it's written in the 1700s. Um, So, uh, you've got a disclosure for us.
1: Yes, I do. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of said information.
0: Perfect. We do warranty and guarantee that any, any information we do not say on the air is incomplete. Thank you. the oh i left one part out we don't pay for this we do buy advertising on the station on ktem and town square we buy advertising we advertise for the radio program as does the studio and we get a discount on our rates which really tells you something about that if we're being discounted it isn't that okay so uh i don't know why they keep us on we have been through six owners of ktem and i i guess it's just really hard to find people that can talk for two hours straight i i don't know um or maybe i i don't know i i it's just habit we're we're still here i'm i'm not complaining guys still sort of enjoy this this is another disclosure this is the longest conversation jake and jeff get during the week we get to father and son talk time for two hours. It's pretty awesome. And we get to geek out on the stuff that we like to talk about, which we can't have these conversations at the dinner table when wives and children are included. For some reason, they don't follow along with price to earnings ratios and cap rates and GDP from different countries and methods of reporting for some reason they want us to change the channel at the dinner table, uh, so uh, that 's the last disclosure all right, so we have a as is tradition is we have to bring tradition into this. We have a question from Inquisitor John, our most faithful questioner. He questions us about everything. why'd you do that why no no it's actually very respectful questioning. Inquisitor John, thank you again. As a tradition, he sent us a digital picture of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal with ink annotation, uh, which he got from a, a source that printed digital material onto the paper and sent it back to us digitally. And now we are commenting on it. So if you really like the analog to digital conversion process, this question will get you regardless of the question. All right. So his question subject is jawboning. What is it? How does it work? He's got an article from the Wall Street Journal. Dollar is global problem, which if that was uh, a normal sentence in a speech, I would say, are you having some trouble? Dollar is global problem. Oh, okay. Um The part that's circled is some global central banks are tapping into stockpiles of foreign currency to help shore up their currencies. Others are publicly threatening to do so, a tactic known as jawboning. Okay, jawboning, what is it? How does it work? Jawboning is any time you threaten to do something for the purpose of changing a price. That doesn't matter if you're negotiating at a used car price or if you're a central bank saying, I'm about to uh, buy more of my own currency with other people's currency because that causes people to go, oh, I want to buy it first so I can get on the upswing when they buy it. This is also something that was done by Elon Musk when he said he was going to take Tesla private and that the funding was secured. If you look what happened to the stock price right after that, this is why the SEC got involved and got upset with him because you're not allowed to jawbone in a stock if it's a lie. <laughs> you can't say that if you're a CEO and... And you start spouting that funding is secured and it isn't, and you're saying it publicly. It's it's not good. It's the, so the SEC got involved with that. He got a fine. Tesla got a fine. Um, jawboning is anytime you say I'm going to do something and it affects the price. So in central banking, it's referred to as jawboning. But I have heard this referred to. In the in southeastern Oklahoma, in way up in the mountains, as stop your jo- jaw boning at me by the by the freaking motorcycle. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, I'm, I realize we usually get really technical in our answers, but I prefer in this particular case. Jaw boning goes back a lot longer than central banks, uh, but central banks are now jaw boning. Why would this? Why would? How would this work? Uh, he said this. So. Um, if, if you say I'm, I'm a central bank of a country, my job is to make sure that my currency doesn't get a lot of inflation or deflation. Um, but you're not the United States. So you've got to have, uh, other currencies as your investments to help you. Well, why not the United States? The United States has more dollars than the other currencies combined. So holding other currencies really, it affects the dollar, but not, as much as what we're talking about here. So say you're in Vietnam, you're the central bank of Vietnam and you say, I have my currency and I wanna hold it steady. We'll use Thailand, the bot. We wanna hold it steady. So we're gonna own some dollars, we're gonna own some euros, we're gonna own some yen. And that's gonna help us when we're buying bonds in other countries to help prop up with our reserves, our own currency. Well, when their currency starts to fall, what they can do is take the money, the yens, the euros, and the dollars, and start buying their currency with it, trading it. That's a market. The foreign exchange market, that will, when more people are buying something, it causes the price to go up because there's a limited supply. So sometimes that happens. But the foreign exchange market has a bunch of people in it that just trade that they're not a central bank they're just trading to try to make money in the difference between one value and another so when a central bank says i'm going to start buying my own currency with all these foreign exchange all this foreign exchange money individual investors and other governments go oh let's go buy that currency before they do so that when they buy it, we'll get a profit, which causes it to go up, even if the central bank doesn't follow up with actually buying it. That's, that is it. It's basically like acting like you're going to bid in an auction and causing other people to bid first. That's, that's exactly what this is, um, but not really exactly. There's no such thing in economics as exactly probably not such a thing anywhere as exactly. Even well, in about,
1: at least according to the Wall Street Journal, and I tend to think that they're right on this, about 60% of the world's currency reserves are dollars. Yep. At, at one point, it was up to 70%, but 60% is still a lot. And there just isn't another currency to replace it with. And here's the problem. As the Federal Reserve has raised rates and longer term rates are going up, if you were in any other nation in the world where they're looking at a recession and probably lowering rates, and you'll notice that uh, across the world, many of the re- referenced rates from central banks and so on are lower than what the Federal Reserve is 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 putting out there. If you have a choice between getting 5% and let's say 3%. And
0: and, and one place is ultra safe and will pay you 5% and right. another place is kind of safe and will pay you 3
1: Right. You would tend to go... To the 5%. This has caused the value of the dollar to rise because in order to invest in those treasury securities, one has to first convert the currency into dollars. You have to buy dollars with your local currency. If you have euros and you want to buy treasury bonds with it or treasury money market or whatever you would want to get into, um, you have to first buy dollars with your euros and then you buy the bonds. And because supply and demand works in currency like it does anything else, the price of the dollar has been rising pretty amazingly. And that causes a problem. Why does it cause a problem? Well, it makes an exported thing to the United States less expensive if the dollar is higher. And that's really cool. But if you're dependent upon the United States for something, and a lot of people in the world are, we do have a large export market and we do produce some pretty high quality stuff, then the price goes up as the dollar goes up. And these are countries that are already experiencing inflation. And when their reserves are dollars, they feel whiplashed by the fact that they're tied to the dollar. And so there is, as usually happens during these types of situations, a widespread call for let's replace the dollar with something else. The problem with that is, is nobody can figure out what the something else should be.
0: Right. Now, uh, the, no- the closest currency by, by any measurement is the euro. Because believe it or not, even though, China's economy is the second largest on the planet. If you look at the European Union as a bloc instead of individual countries, like we do with the United States, it is bigger than China. So when you put those three together, it's kind of a weird concept because it's sort of a confederation of nations and it's sort of its own nation. It is a buying bloc, sort of, but also not. So it, it's a weird weird thing to try to measure with. This is what I mean about there's no such thing as exactly. But when you look at it as a currency, the number of euros out there outnumbers the number of renminbi as far as reserves in the, in the national international market. Because the Chinese don't want their currency traded on the foreign exchange market. It's too hard to regulate their own stuff if other people are doing it too. So the euro, the euro when it started out, Way way back in 1983, was trading at 86 cents to the dollar. But as the franc went away from Germany and became a euro, and as France, wait, they had a franc, uh, um, went away and became the euro, uh, and other major entities became eurocentric. We had throughout the 90s way up in the dollar 33 per euro range. Then we had. Do you remember this? The whole concept of what was going on in 2000 when the dot com bubble busted and Europe was really, really, really in trouble?
1: I remember it at over $1.50. Yeah. $1.50. We're, 50 cents we're to coming buy a to euro. it. We're coming yeah, okay. to
0: it. So, in, in the early part of this century, the 21st century, it was below a dollar again for a euro. It was just a very short period of time and it was a weird, weird time. Why was it? Because it was right around um, the dot com bubble. So there was a big, big, nasty sledgehammer hit to the economy of Europe. It dropped it down. Come forward. And uh, when, when we look up in the Great Recession, the global recession, the global financial mm-hmm. crisis, the dollar went up. I mean, the dollar dropped like a, like a rock, and the euro rose drastically. It was a $1.58 to buy a, a euro. And that was the peak in, a, in April of 2008. We're now at $1. six. It takes $1. six to buy a euro. And this is interesting because that fluctuation has been pretty steady since 2009 in a downward way. The dollar is gaining against the euro. It's bump, bouncing around, but the long-term average is pretty clearly a stronger dollar, weaker euro, which is great if we want to import. Buying stuff over there and bringing it back is fantastic. We can buy more stuff with our dollar. It's not good if we want to export because it takes more euros to buy what we're trying to sell now. It looks like we're charging more for our stuff than the equivalent being sold in Europe. So there shouldn't be a big surprise that our imports are growing faster than our exports. It's easier to buy things than to sell things right now. Things are cheaper to buy and more expensive to sell. That makes it harder to sell and easy to buy. And so our balance of trade is upside down. It's not really upside down. It's the way it's supposed to be, but it looks like a negative. It isn't really a negative because what you just said about 60% of the world's currency being dollars, they're buying dollars and we don't look at that as an influx of money to us. It is an export of money, which is being purchased with other money. So it is an export and it's really a strange thing, but back when... The Netherlands was the leading economy on the planet. Wait, I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. Yeah, yes, do that. that that happened, guys. It's worth checking it out. The Netherlands, the Dutch economy was the largest economy on the planet. Uh, when that happened, the the Dutch currency was what people were trading with, and the Dutch took on the the doubloon at some point because the Spanish brought in so much gold uh, and eventually that extra gold made the Spanish economy bigger temporarily. But the Dutch were also counting their exports of money as an export because back then it was metal uh so they counted it as an export when other people were using dutch currency to buy stuff with they had to buy it from the dutch and and so this is something we're not doing today because we say well the dollar is paper except that it is still a value it is it is absolutely what else is it if if the dollar isn't a value so as an export, it's not being counted. And that's weird and dry, and having this dinner conversation with an eight-year-old would never fly. Um, what? You don't count it as an export? What's an export? Well, it used to be a port. It, it was like a closed-down port facility is an export. Oh, okay. And an import, um, it, it's, it's short for important. It means it came from somewhere else, and that's important, except that all the stuff that we get from China is not important these days, even though it's imported sorry semantics getting involved again um i bet you have a few things to say
1: well something about the dollar that i think is fascinating uh when we started doing this radio program uh back in the 1990s was it yeah yeah and we started talking about this subject i remember that the japanese yen was pretty consistently in the early 2000s late 1990s pretty consistently worth a penny
0: Yep, 1 to 100 ratio, yep.
1: Yeah, and to give you some idea, it now takes 100, so it took 100 yen to buy a dollar. Mm -hmm. Now it takes 149 yen to buy a dollar, and Japan is one of the larger uh, economies in the world, and that gives you some idea of how the world perceives the dollar. It keeps climbing.
0: Um, We've got lots to talk about, but I wanted to bring in a minor nitinoid piece of, of... change in the economy. Um, There is a truck charging network being established from Texas to California for Tesla semi-trucks. They've been producing their truck, their semi-tractor trailer. It's not the trailer part, the semi-tractor in an electric fashion since October of last year. So you're not likely to see a whole bunch of them on the road right now but they've been doing a pretty big production there. There are other companies doing it as well. I bring Tesla up because they're the first to come to the market with it. This network of charging stations is going to be partially paid for by U.S. government dollars, which happened when uh, the oil companies were expanding gas stations across the country as well. The government helped to implement that. The infrastructure of putting fueling stations in place is just like road work. It's an important thing to, allow business to flow and the data that's coming back on the trucks um is that that there were there's a big test that was just done on uh the uh on trucking electric trucking um it's called the uh the run-on-less electric truck and electric depot truck stop event, which just rolls trippingly off the tongue, doesn't it? I mean, that's such an easy thing to tell people about. Have you heard about the run-on-less electric truck and electric depot truck stop event? (laughs) Um, And really, it wasn't an event. It was a recording of how far the trucks went, how efficient they were, um, how well they ran against themselves, and then, as compared to others, and there were 22 trucks involved. Um, there were quite a number of different people, different companies involved. There was Nikola, uh, Tesla, uh, E Cascadia, Semi, Volvo, V and uh, The so when I BYD, uh, but the the BYD Semi didn't function most of the 22 days or uh, or. Uh, 18 days, I'm sorry. So there were 22 trucks involved from a lot of different manufacturers and basically all of the <laughs> truck manufacturers. And um, let's see, the 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 ones with the best recordings on this, part of the reason why I'm bringing them up, because they hit the market. And a lot of these others are still kind of prototypes. So of course, they're going to fail more. But when we're looking at a non-perfected but mass market produced item, The three trucks that were Tesla trucks uh, recorded 27,614 miles um, at 85% full for 18 days. Uh, They had uh, a combined average mileage of 1,530 miles a day. What does all that stuff mean? It's just kind of numbers. That means for the type of trucking, a short-range, mid-range trucking, even longer-haul trucking um it's starting to be competitive on the electric front. I know this is kind of a there there are people that treat this nearly religiously, the the internal combustion versus electric concept and I have to be careful about stepping on people's toes because there's a lot of emotion wrapped into this. This isn't the first time this kind of emotion has been wrapped up in preserving the old way of doing things versus a new way of doing things. We have tall tales written about them. John Henry was a steel-driving man, a uh, Paul Bunyan out there chopping down the trees, and now we don't have people using axes. But that's what was being replaced. So when we look at automation or new technology replacing an old technology, the chainsaw replacing the axe, a steam driver replacing a sledgehammer for putting spikes into railroad ties. This was a big deal back then. It sounds kind of like a silly thing to have a upset about today. And in the future, people are going to be like, well, why did they care that one technology was better than another? Because we're humans. So having said all of that, we're going to remove that emotion for a second and say the technology in electric vehicles is is exponentially improving right now. And we're not going to have that kind of exponential improvement in internal combustion. We get that at the beginning of a technology. Most of our improvements in internal combustion are finite. They are improving efficiency by fractions of a percent we're in battery technology we're improving pe- efficiency by thousands of a percent sometimes uh now that doesn't come immediately to the mass market we've got time between it so it feels like it's chaotic and you look up and you say 22 trucks did this and a bunch of them didn't even weren't able to even able to drive for more than two days it's true But DARPA has been doing, DARPA is the defense uh, arms, it's a research program by the defense department that is looking at medicine, it's looking at AI, it's looking at automation, and it throws money at anything that it thinks might have a defense-related potential. It has started a lot of companies that later didn't wind up doing defense, but added to some quality of defense. So they for several decades had run this autonomous drive challenge where these robots had to go and hit these checkpoints through a desert and come out on the other end. And for most of those decades, nobody completed it at all, nobody. Then the first year that one completed the challenge where it got all the way through the course, all participants also completed the whole challenge. So all the way up through those multiple decades of DARPA research and funding to get things to autonomously travel across a given route without being steered and drive around obstacles and all that stuff was basically failure. For tens of years, nobody could do it. And then the first year that somebody could do it, they all did it. That's what technology does, is that it's, it's, everybody's working hard from different directions to some, come to the same conclusion. And for some reason, when the dam breaks, it breaks all at once. So what we're looking at in the technology of electric is that that kind of exponential jump is in the future still. And then something else will replace that. I don't know how long electric's going to be around, but it's not a forever thing either. And back when internal combustion came in, there were a lot of people that didn't want to leave the horse and buggy because you can't drive all the way across the county in one of those internal combustion things. They don't have fueling stations anywhere. And when you do, they may not have enough for you. And it takes a long time to hand pump that stuff out of the ground and put it in your tank. And you got to sit there for an hour. Well, with a horse, you just let it eat the hay, and you just keep right on going. You apply those exact those appear these arguments appeared in newspapers just at the same vehemence as people today when talking about electric and internal combustion, and it it is because we're human. Uh, So just know that as technology changes, it's all right to feel a little bit of nostalgia and even bitterness about this new upstart coming along. But also you should make good financial decisions. And if it's long term cheaper to buy an electric vehicle, then and it does everything you want it to do and more, it's probably the good choice to buy. You shouldn't say I want to keep spending extra money and making more smoke just because I can. Some of you will. And if you do, you will keep the UAW employed in their internal combustion manufacturing arm for a very long period of time, and they should thank you for that. I'll thank you for it, too. You are allowed to buy what you wish. It is a free market. So, I'm sure you have some big things to talk about.
1: Well, not quite maybe as interesting as yours, but they're certainly fascinating. We just had a jobs report come out from the Labor Department, our Bureau of Labor Statistics, one of our
0: Oh, More we, interesting places. We love B.
1: And uh, I, I love uh, oh, announcements this is, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics boss. and from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. They're, by definition, a room full, a bureaucrat, uh, uh, an entire bureau of analysts who are anal.
0: Oh, lovely. That's just a lovely image. I'm, I'm going to have to scrub my I would, brain a second. I would Hold love on. to work there.
1: Uh, Anyway, we had like 269,000 new jobs created last month. That is astonishingly big. 100, 150,000 is roughly what it takes to keep the economy on an even keel. But when I say jobs created, that is net hires by American employees. We increased the workforce in the United States who are working and getting paid by 269,000. And they are receiving higher wages than they have in the past, as Jake pointed out, because there's a shortage of workers. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate stayed at 3.8%, which is pretty close to full employment uh, by every theoretical definition I know of. But then there's something interesting that came out. If you look at that carefully, which is why the bond rates went up when that was announced, thinking, oh, my goodness gracious, we're employing so many people are going to have runaway inflation again, and the Fed's going to raise interest rates and put us into a recession. But then bond rates went back down a little bit, and the market got out of its dip on Friday and actually gained on Friday, so it was up for the week. What happened? If you dig down deep, there's two surveys that the labor department does. One is called the institutional survey, where they look around the country to representative companies and say, How many people did you hire last month? And they tell them, and that's a precise number, and the the accuracy of that is pretty much unquestionable. That how many did you hire? How many did you fire last month? And they have the right companies lined up and sufficient people answer these people do answer the phone, they're professionals, and so when the Labor Department calls, they give them the information. Then there's the Household Survey, which is sometimes a little wild and crazy. The Household Survey is where we get the unemployment rate, and we go to the Household Survey, and we in the, the Commerce Department contacts a lot of cell phones, and a lot of, they do a survey. How many people are working in your household? How many people are looking for work? How many people would like to work, but they're not looking for work? There's a whole lot of numbers that come out of that. The Household Survey showed that we hired, a, a show that statistically, uh, roughly 88,000 people got new jobs in September. The institutional survey showed that 369,000 people got jobs. Mm. That's a big difference. So th- one of the things we're dealing with right now when it comes to data, and the Federal Reserve has to react to data, is there's a lot of uncertainty. We really don't know how many new jobs were created. Now you say, well, the institutions are creating new jobs, but that's a sample. The, the Labor Department doesn't call every institution. Now, let me add something to that though the report also increased the previous two months new employment net new employment by 150 thousand each whoa so one of the things that's going on in the economy right now is we are kind of sailing into a fog there's there's conflicting information everywhere we have that that huge number of new employees is just mind-boggling. Now, an interesting point coming from a different direction. When uh, the ISM PMI, and if you don't know what an ISM PMI is, you're obviously not an economist, Uh, the Institution for Supply Management Purchasing Managers Index came out. It looked really good. As usual, the uh, services index indicates that services are still expanding it's right around 54 anything above 50 is growth the the side that was interesting is manufacturing which is only eight percent of our gdp right now but it's still a very significant eight percent of the gdp it and then it came out at at a whopping 49 well considering it was 46 last month it's at 49 which means it's shrinking slightly except those are all the numbers melded together if you take the individual production it's at 52. Now, what does that mean? Under the surface, our economy is growing very nicely by any measure you want to go at. Sometimes, because of the raggedy data, it looks like it's not. Sometimes it looks like it's contracting and people pay a lot of attention to that because the economists who pay attention to it do so because all of their tea leaf reading for the last year has said the economy should be in a recession right now. And they've come down on the side of it should be in a recession right now. And We're waiting for the recession to show up, and we know it's got to show up at some point because all of our tea leaves said it was going to come. And they have a slant on it that says, this must be the recession about to happen. Here's what I recommend. If you're in Central Texas, drive to Austin or Waco and drive back and look at I-35. If you see I-35 slam full of 18-wheeler trucks, which, by the way, you will. You can say, we're not in a recession. When you see I-35 that's mostly cars and the 18-wheelers start to disappear, then you can get concerned about that. It's important to, to pay attention to these things. So what does it mean if the United States economy is growing very nicely and, as the Atlanta Fed has suggested, is going to be way over an annualized rate of 4% for the third quarter that just ended? Um it means that corporate earnings will go up. Why will corporate earnings go up? Because if our economy is doing a lot of business, our economy is primarily made up of corporations. Now, the corporation's profitability is not the biggest piece of the economy. The amount of money they pay their employees is the biggest piece of the economy. So as long as we have good, healthy growth in the economy, earnings on the stock market tend to rise over time they may fluctuate up and down but they tend to rise and if you want to know the future the easiest way to do it is to check out what business managers are saying about the future and how do we know what they're saying about the future well when the ism pmi is taken they ask for <laughs> anecdotal you know told you what it was institute for supply management purchasers Man- purchasing managers index
0: i just i just have to laugh every time we throw out letter number combinations and ah, the ism pmi is a little bit. well but I, we did say what it was which yeah it
1: irritates true. me when they come up with a Gobbledygook of letters in, a, in an art news article, and they don't tell me what the gobbledygook of letters means. Right. Um, particularly when I go to Google and I can't figure it out there either. So somebody what, just
0: abbreviated it on their own. Yeah, it's fine. Don't they wait.
1: ask employers why are you not laying people off? Because one of the it, it's ju- it's just as important, and this is this is something we do know the numbers on. People are not being laid off, even by manufacturers who technically over the last several months, actually for eleven months, have been contracting in size. They've been shrinking their new orders are shrinking, which is one of the reasons we thought we were going to be in a recession at this point. When asked, why are you not laying people off? They give two reasons. One, it's very difficult once you lay somebody off to find somebody that is trained to hire. You can't just hire them off the street. I mean, it's it's getting complicated to do work to manufacturers. And secondly, they're receiving signals from their customers that more orders are coming down the road. They're, the, custom, the, the customers are expanding their operations during this relative slack period, because they anticipate more business coming down the road, which is people have asked me why I'm optimistic. As long as I have the long term numbers, this optimistic, I'm very happy. And how, what's another way of looking for that? Find out where the economy is going. Look at durable goods orders; they're up. Industrial durable goods orders are up. Those are not spur, and, and they're also in household up, which means that Americans, no matter what they say when they're asked about their confidence about the future. They are buying new washing machines and new dryers and television sets and things that last a long time. And the businesses are doing the same thing.
0: I was at home Depot a couple of weeks ago, just picking up a little bottle of Clorox, not a big deal. I wasn't making a major expense. Um, And I didn't see a whole lot of people in the home improvement section, the areas with like tiles and all of that. I didn't see a whole lot going on over there, but when I walked by the washer dryer the refrigerator area, there were throngs. There were people mm-hmm. lined up to talk to people about that. And we're seeing that kind of across the board on those major long-term durable good orders. Those are expenses that you do with the expectation that they're going to last a long time. And, and people, people pretty cool.
1: normally pay for those over time. They don't normally buy them with cash and they're not. They're, they're running their Revolving debt up. And they only purchase things like that when they are confident they will have income over the next year or two. So, the confidence, believe me, the, the confidence ratings from various universities and from the government and everything else, when they survey people and say, How confident are you about the future? In many cases, they'll say, Oh, we think things are bad and getting worse or something to that effect. But watch what they do with their money. And admittedly, the surveys may be imperfect, but when you see a survey or you hear something about the future of the economy, And the economy ultimately drives the stock market. Go to Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever this is going on and wander around and see what people are doing. It's not that hard. Uh, It it is... It is people think well, oh, the the big the big big heads and everything have got it all figured out, and they're giving us good information. It's, and usually they are, but one of the things we don't pay attention to.
0: Um, pretty much on the wrap up there. In the meantime, if you would like to talk to us off the air, yes, these two weird bald guys actually do something for a living. Uh, we are we give investment advice and portfolio management through the personal wealth coach. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, there's voicemail waiting during the week. Uh, real live people during. Uh, voicemail waiting during the weekend, real life people during the week. Uh, The local number is?
1: 254-947-1111. And that's
0: uh, if you still happen to have a landline, that's one of those things where you actually have to plug a wire into the wall. Um, You can reach us toll free at 1-800-914-7526, 1-800-914-7526, that's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can uh, read our newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and my personal opinion is that it is uh, one of the best out there. And my professional opinion is that I'm prejudiced on the subject, but I believe it is a very good new- newsletter. Um, the uh, You're also welcome to get that every Friday by signing up for it. You can contact us through the contact forum on the webpage or through email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Our radio program is also available on that website going back a long ways. And if you prefer bite-sized bits, you can find our podcasts anywhere where you find podcasts, which is like saying it is what it is. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.